are going to, God willing, spend the entire hour in Ephesus. We're going to start with Acts chapter 20, and we'll pick it up in verse 17. And what's going on in Acts? Paul is on his way back to Jerusalem from a missionary trip, and it'll be his last visit to Jerusalem because that will be where he's arrested and shipped off to Rome and so forth. As he's going back, he is stopping at Miletus, which is on the coast, and he is sending to Ephesus for the elders because he wants to talk to them before he goes. And this will be his final address. And what the plan of the evening is, I want to read Paul's address to the Ephesians, and I want to note a couple of things as we read that address. Then where we'll probably go is to Matthew chapter 13. You'll see that there are seven kingdom parables there, and the seven kingdom parables parallel the seven letters of Yeshua to the seven churches in Revelation. They also parallel Paul's seven pastoral letters. So what you have in getting all those things matched up is you have essentially the same subject addressed from at least three different perspectives. So Yeshua's seven kingdom parables in the book of Matthew gives Yeshua's perspective on the kingdom before his crucifixion. Then you have Paul's letters, which are covering the same subjects as the kingdom parables, and those are between the crucifixion, the writing of Revelation. Then John, in Revelation, gives Yeshua's perspective on the same seven things from after Paul. So you have the same subjects addressed three different times from three different time perspectives. And based on that, you can see a progression. And I'm not going to go through all seven, obviously. I've done that before, and that's a study that takes a few days. But I want to do Ephesus, which is the first one, because that's where Paul is tonight, and that's our next vignette in the book of Acts. We'll start with Acts 20 and verse 17. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Yeshua Messiah. Now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I have received from the Lord Yeshua, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming my kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. All right, let's stop here for just a second. He's going to reiterate this in a minute. But one of the things he's doing is saying goodbye to his ministry in much the same style as both Moses and Samuel did. 
Because you remember at the end of Deuteronomy, Moses stood up and said, I have been faithful. I have not taken any man's donkey, which is to say I have not profited from the ministry that I have had, and so forth. And then he goes up to the mountain to die. Samuel does the same thing. He repeats what Moses says at the end of his public ministry. And he says, if I've defrauded anybody, or if I've taken anybody's donkey, or if I have unjustly profited from my position, say it now. And of course they all say, you have not. So Paul is doing very much the same thing here. He's publicly declaring that among them, his ministry is finished. And he is saying that he has not profited from that ministry. He has executed that ministry faithfully. And as he goes off, he's not looking back in any way except perhaps in personal affection for the people there. Everything is tied up. I've done everything that needed to be done. I haven't defrauded anybody, so I'm done here and I'm moving on. Verse 26 again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. This is the crux. What he's saying is, I'm going, and after I'm gone, people are going to come in, and they're going to try and lead the flock astray. Some of them will come from outside, some of them will come from within you, but you need to be alert for this. Ding, 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 ding. This is going to be the theme that is going to carry through the kingdom parables in Matthew, the letters, the Ephesians, and the letter to the church in Ephesus in Revelation. This is the crux of the church in Ephesus, purity of the word. In other words, I have given you the word and I expect you to guard it against anyone that comes in against it. This is going to be the basis of everything that follows through this thread that we're going to go through. So 31 again, therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. So again, this is... Moses or Samuel's farewell. I didn't take anything unjustly. I supported myself. You know that I used my hands to earn my own living, and I also used my hands to minister to the people of God. 35. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Yeshua, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So that's the block that we're going to work with. By the way, backing up a second, coming back to verse 32. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Another ding, 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 ding. What's the first thing out of the box in Ephesians chapter 1? What's he talk about? I'm in Ephesians 1, and I'm going to pick it up in verse 11. 
In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in the Messiah might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So back here in this farewell address, he says that I commend you to God and to the word of grace, who is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So he's telling them that they have an inheritance coming in the letter to Ephesians. He says that the Holy Spirit is your seal and your guarantee that you will receive that inheritance even though you have not yet taken possession of it. The letter to the Ephesians is written after the events in Acts. But notice we're going to have the same themes going through all of this because the thing that that church needs to hear doesn't change. It just gets said to them in several times from different perspectives by different people, Yeshua and Paul, and in different time horizons. So that's the farewell in Acts. And the thing that he is talking to them about, in addition to the inheritance, is he is explicitly teaching doctrinal purity. You guys, I have taught everything that I know. I have left nothing unsaid. You have everything that I wanted to teach you. Beware, because in the future, there will arise both among you and from outside of you people who are going to come in and they are going to distort this word and they are going to try and lead your flock astray. That's the charge to the Ephesian church. Now, probably the easiest place to go next is Matthew 13. Now, in Matthew 13, you have got seven kingdom parables. And going through all of Matthew 13 is a couple of weeks in itself. And I'm not going to do that. But what I will assert is that the parables in Matthew 13 address the same subjects in the same order as the seven letters to the seven churches. And if that's correct, and I'm just going to assert that it is for right now without going through and showing you, but if that's correct, then which parable applies to the Ephesian church? The parable of the sower. It's the first parable. So the parable of the sower. A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. And the disciples said, obviously, why are you speaking in code all of a sudden, boss? And you've been here enough that you probably know this by heart, but I will very quickly go by. The previous vignette in Matthew 13 is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So back in Matthew 12, they say that he's casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub. And that's when he gives the business about, you can... Badmouth me all you want, but you can't badmouth the Holy Spirit because that's not forgivable. Before then, he speaks plainly. After that event, he speaks in parables. As an Old Testament prophet, what he has done between Matthew 12 and Matthew 13 
is he has decided Jerusalem is going to be going into exile. Before that, his message was repent, and he's trying to bring them back to the way of God as a prophet. They don't do it. So he then switches into parables, which is by way of telling them the truth in a way that they will not understand it, and they will not be able to take further action. Because once they attribute his works to the devil, he makes the decision, or his father makes the decision, and I don't know how that works, but the decision gets made, okay, repentance didn't work, we're doing exile. So he will continue for the rest of his ministry to speak the truth to them, but he will speak it in parables, so they will not be able to take effective action, because exile has been decreed, and he wants to tell them the truth, so that as they are in exile and they go back and read this stuff, they will say, ah, that's what happened. That's what prophets do. And by the way, he explains all of that in the following vignette. When they ask him, why are you speaking in parables all of a sudden? He goes through what I just said, minus the exile part. He doesn't say exile. I threw that in because I happened to have read the end of the book. And I know that that's what's going to happen. They don't know that yet. So then the first thing he does is explains to them the parable of the sower. And the key to the parable of the sower, of course, is what does the seed represent? The word of God. So the seed is the word of God. What was Ephesus' charge? Keep the word of God. I have given you the word of God. You need to defend it. You need to keep it. You need to preserve it. You need to teach it. So the first parable here in the kingdom parables is all about the word of God. A couple of things. Some preacher I once heard said that the guy who's doing the sowing is not a very good farmer because if you have expensive seed, you're not going to be spending much time sowing your seed in the middle of the road. You're going to be fairly careful where you sow your seed because it's expensive. This sower is very careless with where he sows the seed. He broadcasts it everywhere. He broadcasts it into places where he knows it will not grow. And by the way, my interpretation of his reason is everybody gets an opportunity to hear the word of God. If your heart, which is the soil, doesn't receive it, that becomes your problem. It is not God's problem. Because God has scattered his seed over your stony heart. And if you would not give it a place to grow, that becomes your problem, not God's problem anymore. If God doesn't throw his seed over your stony heart, you can always stand up in front of him at the judgment and say, nobody ever told me. So God scatters his seed and the condition of the heart then becomes up to you. You need to break up the stones in your heart, break up the soul of your heart, so the word comes into your heart and grows and produces fruit. But God will sow his seed over your heart regardless of whether or not it is ready to accept seed and produce fruit. So that's the parable of the sower. Next place we're going to go, let's go forward now to Revelation. So I'm going to go to Revelation 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. 
So what is the last charge that Paul gives to the Ephesian church? Guard the word. And what Yeshua is saying is, the last thing you got told to do, you're doing it. Verse 3, I know you are enduring patiently, bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Come back to that. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And I will suggest to you, this is all by way of talking about inheritance. The idea that you're going to eat of the tree of the life, which is in the paradise of God, the idea that your lampstand will be among the lampstands in heaven, I will suggest all of those things talk about an inheritance. Because remember, Paul talked about an inheritance when he left them in Acts, and he talks about it again when he gets in Ephesians. So this idea that there's an inheritance waiting for these folks, I'm suggesting to you, carries through. So, they did what they were told, they preserved the word, they have found false apostles and have rooted them out and have identified them and so forth, so they're doing everything, but Yeshua gives them a nevertheless. So, question is, what's their problem? What was their first love? Let's read it again. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. Do the works you did at first. There was something that they were doing at first that they had stopped doing. Perhaps we can find a clue in the letter to the Ephesians. So let's go to Ephesians, chapter 5. I'm going to pick it up at 425. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. What was the thing Paul said at the end of his ministry? Look at my hands. I have supported myself with my own hands, and I have used my hands to minister to you. Verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that you may give grace to those who hear, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God and Messiah forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So what have they lost? Community. Let me give you an example. Years ago, I was just starting off in Torah, and I was on an online discussion group on prophecy. And I was sort of the only messianic there. Everybody else was 
straight evangelical Sunday Christian, Bible believers, loved God, knew the word. These were not people who were snarky. They saw the Torah and the law as being done away with. And one woman was on the net and she morphed over a period of about a year. And she came out and she says, I have discovered that my ministry is hunting heresy. I am a heresy hunter. I look for errors in people's understanding of the word, and I point out what's heretical. I've discovered that's my ministry. And she became harsh. She became angry. She finally threw me off the list. She had the first part of the Ephesian church ministry. She knew the word. I mean, she knew the Bible intimately. She was no slouch. She was a bright woman. But she had got it into her head that her job in life was to find and root out heretical beliefs and get them off of that newsome. And in that process, she became cold and hard and unloving. And what is happening here with the Ephesian church, which is what Yeshua is upbraiding them for in the book of Revelation, and what Paul in the middle here is admonishing them about, is, hey folks, doing good on keeping the word, but you're not doing good at all with respect to building a community that builds each other up and nurtures each other and cares for each other because you're watching everyone with beady eyes to make sure that their doctrine doesn't deviate from what you believe. That's what the Ephesian church's problem is. And what starts clear back in Acts where Paul says, hey guys, follow my example. I used my hands to support myself and then I had something extra to minister to others. Then we come to the letter to the Ephesians. You need to use your hands. You need to work. You need to earn something so you have something extra to share with others. And oh, by the way, treat each other with a little bit of forgiveness and forbearance. Messiah loved us. You emulate him. And then by the time you get to Yeshua's letter in Revelation, I have this against you. You have lost your first love. You have ceased to be a community. You have become so zealous in rooting out those who have impure doctrine that in that process you have become harsh. But you've got a progression here. The same group of people in all four vignettes, and it's all the same subject. Doctrinal purity, A+, plus. you're doing good. Taking care of each other, you're not doing so good. That you're going downhill. And oh, by the way, what does Yeshua say that you have to do to inherit eternal life? Love God and love your neighbor, right? That's what the whole thing with a good Samaritan is, right? Love God, love your neighbor. And Paul talks in Acts and in the book of Ephesians about the inheritance that is stored up for the Ephesian church. And what Yeshua says is that inheritance depends on your repentance. Let's go back and read it again. Revelation 2, verse 4. I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, 
I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So what I'm suggesting to you is that we're talking about inheritance here. Just like we were talking about inheritance back in Acts, and just like Paul is talking about inheritance in Ephesians 1. And Yeshua needs to issue a course correction. And he says, you know this inheritance you got stored up? You've got some repenting to do, otherwise that's in danger. Verse 7, you as an ear let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And I'm suggesting to you that represents an inheritance. But it's to the overcomer, the one who repents, the one who returns to his first love, which is building up the community. Since we're hanging out here in Revelation, I'm down out of verse 2-6. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Anybody know what the Nicolaitans are? They show up again, I think, in the church of Pergamum. If you go down to verse verse 15, Revelation 2.15. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent, if not I will come soon and war against them with the word of my mouth. The word Nicolaitan, just the Greek of it, Nico means ruler, and laitan, common people. You know, like the church, you have the clergy and the laity. It's the same word. So ruler over the people is what it means. And what I am assuming, with no basis other than the meaning of the word, is that we're talking about a clergy that fleeces the sheep. Let's go ahead and finish up Acts 20, and that way we can start on a fresh chapter in two weeks. So 36. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Now, to sort of wrap up, Yeshua says that the thing that they've abandoned is their first love. One of the things that's fairly obvious here is the personal warmth that they have for Paul. I think I said this midrash a time or two ago. One of the things that the Sunday church say a lot is God doesn't call the qualified, he qualifies the called. In other words, you ain't bringing anything that God specially needs. He can use a donkey. So don't get too high and mighty about your particular talents that you bring to God. And there is truth in that. The idea of not being puffed up with pride because God can, in fact, use a donkey if he needs one. Having said that, God calls people and makes use of the talents and education that they bring to the ministry. So Barnabas, for example, is an encourager. Name means son of encouragement. Son of the father, I mean. He's an encourager. And God uses him in that role. Paul is a teacher and a Torah scholar. God didn't need to take Paul off and give him remedial instructions in Torah. Paul knows all that. Now, he then steps off and goes to Arabia and, and gets spun up on the gospel and who Yeshua is and so forth. That he needed to get spun up on. But all the underlying stuff about the Torah, he already knows. 
And so God uses him in the role of somebody that travels from place to place teaching Torah to dumb Gentiles. Because that's what his life experiences. So Paul obviously has a warm affinity for the Ephesian church. And I think part of that is because the Ephesians are temperamentally similar to him. They really like getting into the Word. They really like all the ins and outs, of, like sitting in here in Midrash. And we got people that all of you know the Word really well and you enjoy getting into you know, the little nooks and crannies of the Word. That's something you enjoy, and, and that's good. But there are other people who just enjoy singing and dancing. And that's how they praise God, and that's how they worship, and they couldn't tell you half a dozen things about Scripture. I think Paul is temperamentally wed to this particular church because I think it's a church that is temperamentally very much like him, which is why they are so warm with each other and why he left them with the task of guarding the Word because that's the kind of thing that they really like. At least here, you can see the warmth and community that they have developed with him. By the time we get to Revelation, Yeshua has to jerk them up short and say, you've done well keeping the word, but you're not doing so well keeping the community.